Close your eyes, bow your heads. Can we pray just for a moment? Will you take a moment, just offer up a word of thanks to God for His character, for His nature, for who He is. Thank Him for His willingness to save us when we are at our worst. I want you to think of one person in your life who is in desperate need of a touch of God today. Either a touch of salvation, a touch of healing, and just lift that person up to the Lord right now. God, thank you for our time together this morning. We know it's meaningless unless the beauty and the power of Jesus is upon us and with us and in us. I ask that as words flow out of me, that they will be words that are true, and those words that I may speak, God, that don't honor who you are, may they fall to the ground and not be remembered and be trampled. Uh, But if I speak words that honor your heart, may they be words that establish themselves deep in the hearts of people to shape and form us into who you want us to be in the world this very week. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, and the church said, Amen. Please be seated. Can we put our hands together for the praise team for a healthy kip this morning? (laughs) Kip, when you're gone, we miss you, man. Armani, we're grateful to have you here this summer. Uh, Happy Father's Day to all of you. Um, I, I always acknowledge on a day like this that I know there are people in the room right now who have a lot of different emotions, uh, a dad who is not here, maybe there are dads who have lost children, there are some of you who your thoughts, what your memories of your dad are, are, are not positive memories, and we acknowledge that, we give you voice, we pray for you. I know there are a lot of you in here that today is a day full of a lot of joy. You've already reached out to your dad. Uh, this used to be the day that for a long time, more collect calls were made on Father's Day than any other day of the year, because that's what we do, right? We... Make dad pay to tell him how much we love him. We asked dad to take us to Texas Day Brazil to celebrate how great dad is. Uh, I want to thank you that as uh, my wife and I, as we left Texas to move here, we're so far away from family. So many of you have, have stepped into our lives to be spiritual dads, moms, spiritual grandparents, spiritual aunts and uncles. Uh, people like Mark Taylor, who's become like a in a way, a dad to me, we joke sometimes when we go out to lunch on staff meetings, sometimes a, a waiter, waitress will be taking our order, and I'll lean over to Mark, and I'll say, hey, dad, uh, can I get a soda today? And they'll say, what would your mom say right now? Uh, uh, it's good to be with you. All right, so when we come into this room, sometimes we say things like this, that it's not that we want a lot of stuff from you at Sycamore View, we want stuff for you. Uh, so here's how I think that phrase even plays out. So we've led you through uh, the Sycamore View 5 commitments this year. So for every new member who's becoming a member here, for, for members, we've asked you to commit to these things. That here, here are some of the things we're asking. In a way, they are from you, but we want stuff for you. So we're asking everyone just to be a church because we believe something happens when 
a diverse, eclectic group of people get in a room to worship God together. We've asked you to connect to some kind of small group, a Bible class, a life group, a discipleship group, where you are in a community of people where spiritual formation is taking place. We've asked you to connect to a service, a ministry team, where, uh, where we're acknowledging that the Christian life isn't just about being in a, in a room with people that we like, uh, feeding ourselves on the Bible, which is all good, but we're also called to be people who are engaging in acts of compassion and service. There is a commitment to giving because some of the dreams of God are expensive and it takes money to accomplish some of these things. That's why God invites us into partnership. And the last thing is to go into the world. So there are things we need from you, but there's so many things that we want for you. And when it comes to even a sermon, I'm asking you this morning, I want you to take a lot of notes. We're diving into a passage that I think addresses this topic that we're in. It's a three-week series that I'm calling Image Bears, that we are people made in the image of God. Uh, Next week, I want to talk more about Christ and culture. What does it mean to be Christians who live in a culture that sometimes feels hostile, sometimes where it's like the presence of evil seems so prevalent? What does it mean to be people who take Jesus seriously to engage culture, not just to always run from it? So I want to lead us through places like Matthew 13 and how Paul did this, how Jesus did this, and how they taught this. when it comes to the, to the word sexuality, and, and I know there's so many challenges with this now, of who gets to define marriage and what's going on at Target and, and, and bathrooms, and there are a lot of questions you have and things that, a lot of concerns that people have of where's the world going and where has the world been and how do we faithfully follow Jesus and what kind of world are our grandchildren growing up in. But before we can talk about Christ and culture, I think we have to talk about what does it mean to be image bearers of God, that God created every human being. There's not a human being who walks the face of this planet, that God did not breathe them into existence. How do we treat other human beings? So last week, I encourage you to go on and listen to the sermon from last week. It was in the, the creation story about when God created human beings in his own image. And today I want to open up 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I think it is one of the most important chapters in, in all the Bible, especially the New Testament, of what it means to be people who honor who we are with God and honor our bodies in a way that we respect how God created our bodies. And I think what I have this morning for you, what God has given me is a word of hope and a word of good news. Now, for parents in the room with kids, I'm going to do my very best to be really careful with what words I use to talk about sexuality because I don't want you bringing your seven and eight and nine-year-olds to the office this week for me to explain things I've said from the stage. You know what I'm saying? So I'm going to do my very best. Um, the, the, just the word sexuality, when, I, when you think about it, especially through the Bible, it's not what your body does with another human being. It is who you are with God. I think that is the foundation that God has created us as people who are loved by God, created by God. We are sexual beings because God has created us that way. Now, open your Bibles if they're not already there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Underline stuff, take notes, highlight, uh, write some things down. Let's begin. Let's just read uh, verse 9 through verse 20. uh, And I want to unpack it for us a little this morning. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers. Okay, did that get almost everybody? All right, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you used to be, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Now, if your Bible doesn't have quotations in verse 12, some of these phrases need quotations around them. 
all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh. Quote to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun fornication. Like, don't flirt with it, right? Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you were not your own, for you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body? And the church said, amen. It's a pretty good word. All right, a few things I want you to notice in this, in this passage, okay? Number one, uh, Paul is referring to everyone, and he doesn't use the word family, but he is addressing everyone in the church. And I want to come back to that in a little while and talk about that because uh, 1 Corinthians really gets at this, where Paul is, he's talking to the old and to the young. He's addressing married people and single people, widows. He's uh, addressing Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor. So all these people are together, and he wants them to acknowledge that. So he's addressing all of them. You all were washed. You all were sanctified. Y'all, okay? So we're all in this together. Also, he wants people to understand that how we treat and respect our bodies will have a major impact on how we treat and respect the bodies of other people. Another thing he wants people to understand is he wants to instruct them about problems facing them because of culture. And some of the things I'm going to share with you today, you're going to be like, man, maybe the world hasn't changed that much over the last 2,000 years. So Paul wants to instruct them about challenges in their culture. And what he wants them to also see is that how you treat your own body becomes a witness to the world of God's faithfulness. Right? So your respect for your own body and acknowledging that your body is a temple of the living God in which the Holy Spirit dwells becomes a witness to the world of the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Now, here's a major concern for Paul, and this is a major concern for me too. Because here's a truth that has transcended for 2,000 years, all right? And here's what it is. Paul was very concerned that there were people in that church, there were Christians who had disconnected their faith in Jesus from what they were doing with their bodies. This is a major concern. I I don't know if you feel this, okay? But let me try to explain it just a little bit. He He was very concerned that these people had disconnected their faith in Jesus with how they were engaging in moments of temporary pleasure. All right, this is one of the first heresies in the first century. Some people call it dualism. Some people call it Gnosticism. It was separating, like heaven is way over there and earth is way over here and they don't overlap and they don't interact. So heaven's where everything's good. Earth is where everything's bad. So what people would do with their bodies is they would think the soul is what is good. The body is what is bad. So my soul is going to stay connected to Jesus But when I feel like I need to engage in moments of temporary pleasure with my body, I can do that. And somehow people, it was like they were going to bed at night and they were feeling okay about their life with God because of how they were interacting and living in the world. Now, let me paint an image for you of what it was like to live in Corinth at the time. Corinth was a seaport, which meant ships were coming in and out constantly. There um, there, uh, Sailors were coming 
off ships and on the ships. It was a city known for immorality. Immorality was uh, acknowledged. It was celebrated. It was, it was accepted. As culture, it was culturally acceptable. In Corinth, um, their drunkenness, their, um, it wasn't out of the norm to, to um, have commit adultery. And it was like it was okay. It's just what people did. There were a lot of pagan temples in Corinth. And with pagan temples would often come uh, temple prostitution. So for you to connect with the gods who were in those temples, it was almost like what you would do is you would uh, connect with uh, these, these prostitutes as a way to connect with whoever the God was there. So much immorality that was happening that was celebrated. I remember when Casey and I were in college. Uh, we had this one girl. She was from Detroit, and we started college back in 1999. And sometimes when we were hanging out in the cafeteria or somewhere around Abilene, sometimes she would look at someone and she would say, oh, man, that girl right there, she is so 8 Mile. And we had no clue what that meant until the movie 8 Mile came out. And then we learned about, uh, even through her, that there is apparently a road in Detroit called 8 Mile. And if you hung out a lot on 8 Mile, there was a certain reputation that went with that. It's like someone you meet who, sometimes we throw labels on people, right? Like if someone's from Vegas, there may be something you already project upon that person before you know them. Or you just call someone a Yankee, or they're from the South, or they're from Dyersburg or Milan. And they're things we think about. I'm just throwing out towns. I don't know why I chose those two. I just thought it would be fun for a moment, all right? Uh, but in the first century, if you were from Corinth, there was a reputation that went with that. It's like, oh, man, that person is so Corinth. Like there were phrases that they would throw around like Corinthianize. I mean, these phrases of these people are from Corinth, which means they were a certain kind of people. Now, Paul is writing to people in that church who were born in Corinth, raised in Corinth, had lived in Corinth, now came to know Jesus in Corinth. So think about how many people in that church had a past, right? A bad past. And some of you are like, well, it's kind of me too. And maybe there's some good news for you. So he writes to them, these people who have a past, because he wants, what he wants them to know is what I want you to know too, is until we fully embrace the God of our future and the God who wants something for us in our present, If we fail to embrace the God of our future and the God of our present, we're going to sink back into doing things from our past. And there's another way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, let's just focus on verse 9 and 11 just for a moment. Now, a series like what I'm doing right now, a three-week series on uh, biblical sexuality is so hard. And here's one of the main reasons why. Because it is so easy for us to elevate certain sins above other sins, right? And some of this is because it's a lot more fun to point out sins in other people than it is to point out sins in me. Now, when we read a list like that, like is shown in verse 9 and 10, it's really easy for us to point at certain things and to elevate them above others. I mean, in that list, though, there are, like the greed, the, the person who suffers from greed is put in the same sentence with, with those who um, are sodomites and those who are committing adultery and fornication. So, um, Paul is addressing them all. Now, why it is so hard, even in a church, to talk about things like sexuality is because uh, there are very few things you could think of that can be so public and on this, at the same time be so private. Like, these are the struggles we have that can be so private. No one else may know you struggle with these. Some of you, within the last 24 hours, have done things with your hands and with your bodies that you are so ashamed of this morning 
and nobody knows about it. Um, now, there's no such thing as a sin in your life that doesn't have an impact on other people in some kind of way. But there's also very few sins you can think of, very few things that can be so public that if you mess up in this way, you can be identified in a way for the rest of your life or until you believe that God has changed you and has given you a new way, right? So what Paul addresses here is he lists out all these things and then he says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, uh, something about the kingdom of God. Paul doesn't say, for you will not inherit heaven. And sometimes we take phrases like kingdom of God and we think it is fully equal to heaven. Like you could just place heaven in that category. Heaven is a part of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is more broad than the future. Paul is not just addressing people in the future. What he's wanting people to understand is that if you give into these things now, it it is impossible for you to be fully invested in kingdom life because you were being held down. You were in bondage. You were so distracted. So what he's wanting people to know is that the kingdom of God is inviting you into a certain kind of life right now where there's participation and a new calling and a new identity. And for you to, to miss that now, you are missing out on the reign of God in your life today. Now, as you read verse 9, 10, and 11, I think this is so important. Do you read this as a threat or as good news? Or, and we could, and some of you will talk about this later on in life groups. You could read this and you could send this as a text message to people today as a threat, as a word of warning. Of if you engage in these things, uh, there is no future for you or no present right now for you in the kingdom of God. But that's leaving off verse 11. Because I think why Paul is placing this in front of the people is not as a threat. And it's not some form of manipulation. It is a reminder of who they are now in God. This is the life you used to live. That's who you used to be. That list, you used to be included on that list. But you all, you people, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. He uses language that captivate. It captivates. It fully includes the work of God in people's lives. That God stepped down to save sinners just like you. That's pretty good news, right? Um, now, let me, let me go back just for a moment. Because Paul's writing to a bunch of people in the church who came from all different walks of life. And I think this is important. Because there may be a series like this, and some of you, even last week or today, you're like, well, man, this really doesn't address where I am in my stage of life or who I am. But it's important. First Corinthians is one of those books where Paul addresses people from a lot of different groups. Um, flip over to chapter 7. Paul's going to address virgins and widows. Um, Paul at times would address parents, and he would sometimes speak to children, and sometimes he speaks to Jews, and sometimes to Gentiles. And I think it's important that at no point does Paul ever say, all right, hey, just for a moment, I'm going to speak to the married people. So if you're not married, you go take a break and then come back in a little while and we'll catch up with the next chapter that I'm writing. And, and Paul doesn't say, hey, for a moment, I want to speak to widows and to singles and to those who've been divorced. Everyone else is dismissed and come back in later. All right, even as you read the Bible, like there's no children's toddler time or something like that. So these people are together in a room. And Paul is speaking because everyone needs to be fully aware of what is spiritually forming everyone else. Everyone needs to be fully aware of the challenges we face and when it comes to being formed and shaped in the image of God. So I think there is a word here for people who are married. 
And I think the Bible has a word for people who are married. Uh, and we miss some of this because we live in a culture now where we date before we enter into covenant. And we do realize, and dating was great, all right? It was fun. Casey and I enjoyed it. Um, but for years, you didn't date before you entered into covenant. You entered into covenant, and then you learned to fall in love. And it seemed to work kind of well for the world, right? But think about Hollywood, too, because today Hollywood doesn't celebrate. They don't write movies that celebrate the 37th year of someone's marriage. Who wants to watch that? What they want to place out there, because what is so intriguing is how do people fall in love? But the Bible isn't as concerned about people falling in love as it is concerned with how love is sustained for a long period of time within covenant. Uh, I did lunch, Dan uh, Butler and I did lunch last week. Dan and Pam are about to celebrate their 45th anniversary this year, right? 45 years. Now, um, yeah. Uh, but I don't know how many people would go watch a movie about a guy who's worked at FedEx for a number of years and a woman who's worked at AutoZone for a number of years who've been married for 45 years. They would want to go over to the other theater that's showing Fifty Shades of Grey Part Two, right? Or something like that. And what we need to realize is that when the Bible talks about marriage, it is how love is sustained and how love keeps on going. Now, let me speak a word that I, I sometimes speak every couple of years that I think is so important. It is easy for some Christians and some churches to idolize marriage and the family as if it is the ultimate goal for the life of a Christian. All right, the ultimate goal of the Christian life isn't for single people to be married and then to have kids and then have a family. The ultimate goal of the Christian life is for one's mind, heart, body, and soul to be given over to God and fully over to God. All right, so I want you to be really careful when you walk up to single people and you make jokes or you say things about, well, is there anyone in the future? Uh, are you dating anyone? You know, can I get you some, uh, you know, eHarmony, you know, gift card or something this year? Because you don't know what kind of salt you're pouring into wounds. To be single can be a gift from God. The Bible affirms that, okay? Now, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's not a threat. It is a reminder. It is... It's not a way of saying, watch out or else, or don't go back. It's this way of saying, you have been on the list before, but Jesus has given you a fresh new start. Here's a whole new way to live. All right, now, I know it may seem like I'm going on tangents and I'm addressing a lot of different people, but this is really difficult because I have a lot of things I want to say and a lot of things you need to hear. There are people in this room who, when it comes to what you have done with your body, we have young people and people who may not be so young who are innocent, and you have lived with God in a way that your body is pure. And I'm not just talking about sexuality, but even other things you may do with your body. You have done your very best to honor God with who you are. And we celebrate that. We pray for that. I remember uh, probably seven years ago, we had seven dangerous prayers. We prayed as a church, one for every day of the week. And our prayer on Fridays were prayers of purity over people in this church. And those need to be prayers that we continue to pray. But here's what I also acknowledge is that a lot of people in this room, you have a past and a past that sometimes haunts you and a past that sometimes you worry if you've been forgiven by God or not. I remember a time I went to a youth retreat. I was back in high school and the, the, the focus on that retreat was um, purity and what we were doing with our body. 
And I remember we finished the session and they sent us over to the snack table. And like a bunch of teens do, especially the dudes, man, we were on a dead sprint to the snack table because there were Oreo cookies and chocolate chip cookies and bags of chips and there were sodas. And this was back in the day when I could eat 40 Oreos and not feel guilty and it would do nothing to my body. I would be able to eat 30 minutes later, all right? And we took off on this dead sprint to the table and when we got to the table, it was like other people had beaten us there because every single cookie had a bite taken out of it. And the cups that we were supposed to use to pour our drinks either had lipstick stains or teeth marks or people had bitten the styrofoam off of them. Like everything, even the chip bags, there were just things done. It was like, man, other people have been here and this is gross. Even for teenage boys, it was like, this is gross. And before we could eat anything else, the person who was leading that retreat called us back down and said, this is what it's like when you give your body to someone else. No one else wants a piece of who you are. And I remember hearing that. And then I was looking to the left and the right to all these other friends that I was with, and I was like, okay, I get what you're saying. A call to holiness and purity, and I I get that. I, I get some of the prayers we're supposed to say, but I remember thinking, I really hope at some point in this retreat there is some word of hope because I was looking to the left and to the right, and I knew what some of these other high school students, I knew what all of us, some of the things we had participated in already in our lives, and that we were the people who had been at that table, like we represented those things. And I was hoping there was some word of hope for us, that God would still invite us and allow us, and that there would be people who may still love us in our future. Is this making sense? All right, and there's another preacher, Matt Chandler. I want to show you a clip. This is an infamous clip. Maybe you've seen it before. Matt Chandler's a pastor in North Dallas, and he addresses this. He addresses how he got really uh, frustrated with the church, how it talked about purity. And he gives a word of hope that I want you to see and that I want to build off of. It's about three and a half minutes, but check this out. But it it didn't take long um, before my passion for the gospel and, and my passion to see lost men and women saved um, started to rub against or collide with the church. And, and so it wasn't very long, and, and I, I, won't, I, I can give you dozens and dozens of stories, but, but really one that kind of broke the camel's back where I decided if I was going to do this, I wasn't going to do it as a churchman because the church, more often than not, was an enemy of conversion and not its friend. I'll give you an example um, this turn in me, this break in me happened that God has been just disciplining me on ever since. Uh, occurred my freshman year of college when um, I randomly sat next to a, I'm a freshman in college, I'm sitting next to a 26-year-old single mother who's coming back to school to try to get a degree, never been to church, didn't know much about Jesus, didn't know, and so we began this ongoing dialogue uh, about the grace and mercy of Christ in the cross. And so um, me and some of my crew go over to her house and babysit her daughter. She's actually in an extramarital affair at the time with a married man. And and so we've talked through that, the wisdom in that. Um, This is 
the relationship we had, just kind of serving her and trying to explain to her spiritual things. A friend of mine was playing at a church in the area, and, and so I asked her to come. He was a musician, um, and so I said, hey, a good friend of mine's in a band. He's playing. Um, what, why, don't you come, why don't you come hear him? And, and so she agreed. She thought it would be a concert. I knew better. It was shady. It was excellent. And um, she came with me, and, and we listened to Robbie play, and, and he was tremendous, just a real anointed guy. And then the, the minister got up, and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, uh-oh, this could be a problem. And, and he took a red rose, and he smelled it, and he showed how pretty it was, and then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a 1,000 of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. Do it, do it, and I'm going to teach. And, and then he began what, honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart. I don't, I'm still wrestling. Um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was, um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip, and you, right? And so I'm just thinking with Kim beside me, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And, you know, some kid came up. The rose is just completely jacked up. It's broken. The things are off. The petals are broken. And, and he lifts it up in his big crescendo. I mean, his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling anger, like real, legitimate, I want to hurt him, anger. And it was all I could do not to scream out, Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus wants the rose. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ won. You're not even teaching the basics of our faith. But you were washed, sanctified. Some of us... uh may have grown up in churches where uh, Christianity was defined negatively by what you don't do. You don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't play cards, you don't go to movies, and you don't hang out with people who do any of those things too, right? And what often happens in contexts where Christianity is described by what you don't do is spiritual pride sets in, and it can become a hindrance to the witness of the goodness of God. You can empty a life of worldliness But if it isn't filled with godliness, it is left empty. So look in verse 12. I'm going to do this quickly, okay? In verse 12, what Paul does, and these should be in quotations, because these were popular phrases in those days. Uh, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me. I will not be dominated by them. Food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food. Like, these were popular phrases. They were living under some of the same phrases that we often throw around, too. If it feels good, you should do it. So if there is an urge and an appetite or a craving inside of you, you might as well try to fulfill it just like when you have a craving for food at 3 in the afternoon, you find a snack. There is fast food, and there can be fast ways of trying to satisfy 
urges. Now, from verse 12 through 20, let me give you four things I want you to take home. Pray through these. These may be, one of these may be something you, you send to encourage a friend or someone else. Because Paul focuses so much on the body and how you respect your body and how you respect other people. Here are four things. Just because something may be technically legal doesn't mean it is spiritually appropriate. There are things you can do with your body that do not go against the law of the land. In fact, it is celebrated. There are things you can do with your body that are not going to get you arrested or put in jail or given a fine. In fact, in some circles, you may make more friends because of what you do and how often you do it. But just because something may be technically legal doesn't mean it is spiritually appropriate. The second thing. I want to urge you because I think the Bible does. Do not pursue intimacy that avoids commitment. We often get this backwards. We pursue intimacy not knowing if commitment's going to come later or not. The Bible encourages us to pursue intimacy that avoids commitment until commitment and covenant are established. Number three. The physical part of you is not a piece of property that is disconnected from the spiritual part of you. The physical part of you goes hand in hand with the spiritual part of you. Because the fourth thing is this, God owns and wants the whole thing. All you are. So in verse 18, it's not make sure you don't flirt too much with temptation. It is you shun, you run from any hint of it. And Paul uses an image that was good news, an image that I think would have made people sit back and reflect of, wow, God really is good. What Paul says is you are temples of the living God. You are a temple in which the Spirit of God has chosen to indwell. Now, a temple is not a temple of God unless it has been filled with the presence of God. And it doesn't mean you become perfect, but what it means is that Through the work of Jesus, God no longer chooses to fully dwell in a temple where you have to visit there to have sins forgiven, but God has chosen to indwell within you. You are living, walking temples of the living God. I told this story about four or five years ago. I was asked to speak uh, at one of our Christian universities, uh, and the topic was was on sex. I got to go talk to a bunch of college students about this. And they wanted me to talk about, once people have made mistakes, what is the word of God for them? So I went and spoke in chapel at this Christian university, and then they kept me that night for, they said, hey, we're just going to open up a forum, and people will come, and it's going to be a Q&A. I had nothing to prepare for. Over 100 college students showed up, and questions went on for what seemed like two hours, and they didn't hold back. And then after the Q&A, some people left, but there was a line of people that would have started from these steps and went all the way to where the back doors are right now of people waiting to talk to me. And they were confessing all kind of things. And there was one girl who she sat down on the front row and she was waiting for everyone else to leave. And she sat sat there with her, her face in her hands weeping while I talked and prayed over one person after another. And then after everyone left... I I went and I sat down by her and um, she started opening up. She said, I'm 21 years old. And for the first 21 years of my life, I had never messed around with a guy. And I've never had a sip of alcohol. 
and two days ago on Sunday night, I was there on a Tuesday, 48 hours ago, I did both of those for the first time in one night. I, got, I, I drank too much, and I, I, uh, lost, I lost my virginity all in one night. Devastating. And she started talking about how much of a failure she was and if God would ever forgive her because of the things she had done. And I, I stopped her. And I was in an appropriate setting, all right? I had a friend there. I took her hand in mine. And I said, I need to speak a word that I'm asking God to plant inside of you. Um, here's what Satan wants you to believe right now. Satan wants you to believe that what you did Sunday night is your new reputation, and he wants you to live into the reputation. He wants you to believe that what you did is who you are now. After all, the next time she would date, and I don't remember this girl's name, I don't even remember what she looks like, that there would probably be another guy who comes into her life and says, well, if you did that with him, why don't you do that with me? And this goes with both genders, right? And I said, this is what Satan wants you to believe, but here's what God wants you to believe. God wants you to believe that what happened Sunday night was a mistake. And now God wants you to believe that he can redeem your life and that his love is inviting you deeper into his heart. And that any time a repentant, repentant heart comes before the Lord, God does not shun them. He does not push them away. He welcomes them into his presence. And God wants you to believe that from this day forward, you still have a gift that you can give your husband one day. And I wish this morning I could take, uh, um, I could take your hand in mine. Now, some of you wouldn't want me to do that. Terry Miller would probably punch me if I tried to do that, all right? And I wish I could say two things to you. Sometimes there are people who meet me in my office. They call me. They want to go do coffee. And uh, what they ask is they say, Josh, I need you to pray for God to take sexual desires away from me. And here's my response. I can't pray that prayer because I don't know if God will honor that prayer. Because you were created as a sexual being. It's who we are. It's how we are wired. So to pray for God to take sexual desires away from you is to go against what it means to be human and created by God. But here's my prayer for you. Is that you have a greater understanding of what your identity is in God and that God will give you the strength to practice the kind of self-control that can only come through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And here's the other thing for some of you and for so many people in our culture, is they enter into relationships with people and they ask God to bless relationships that are not honoring the covenant God has given them. And if people are living in willful disobedience, why would God bless something like that? Now, I want to be careful because God blesses us in our disobedience every day, right? Right? I just want to encourage people that when it comes to how we treat our bodies, the bodies of others, and whatever relationship we are in, that we are practicing the kind of commitment that God has initiated, ordained, anointed, and has set in motion. One author wrote a book in which on the, on the front cover of the book, it says this, Jesus loves you just like you are, but he refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. Will you close your eyes and bow your heads? If you're willing, will you just open your hands where you are?
And if there's something I said in this message that was from God and spoke directly to you, I just want you to open up your hands and I want you to ask God right now and say, God, may that word that came from you through Josh have its way with me and not let me go that I may be more like Jesus. And if there is a word I spoke today from God that you need to speak into the life of another person, will you ask God today to give you the courage and the boldness to give you the wisdom and discernment to know how and when to speak that word? Right now, I want to ask our shepherds to go to the places where you pray. We have prayer leaders who are going, who are here to receive you. And every Sunday is important, but I think this is a day where we need movement for prayer. This may, now, your hesitancy right now is like, if I go somewhere, other people are going to see me go there, and they're going to think there's a lot of stuff wrong in my life, okay? And maybe that's what you need this morning. But I also think that there are places of prayer this morning for you to realize that we are called to be witnesses in this world and how we respect our bodies and how we respect and live in our marriages, become powerful witnesses to the world of the goodness and the faithfulness and the beauty of God. So we offer some places for you for prayer this morning. We stand together. Let's sing this song and feel free to find someone for prayer. This is my 